From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. It's 8 p.m. on October 12, 2006, at the Melbourne International Arts Festival. The house lights dim, and the audience settles like hiving bees at twilight. The stage is bare, save for a large copper-colored monolith in the center. From the right side of the stage, Trevor Jameson enters into the reflected copper light. His footfalls silent on a carpet of black sand. He greets the audience with a smile. His words are a lyrical mix of Pijanjara and English. He speaks about the vast plains where the sharp-edged spinifex grasses spread across his homeland. He speaks about his family and his community and what happened when the mushroom-shaped clouds rose up on the horizon and the suffocating heat and burning sand rained down on them. Spinifex country, at the start of a cold war. Pornowaranga, Jugulatinga, under a tree by a rock pool. In the cool of the evening, a baby boy born, my father. Then, unknown to us, something is happening here. Am I right? Am I wrong? My Walter, the family, are carrying the little ones. They know something is wrong. They see the clouds. And the children are too tired to walk. Damu, Gami, Warba, Matigarango. The elders are too sick are left by the road to wait for trucks that never come. And my family's hiding in caves, wait for that sticky cloud to pass over. Refugees. When our families pass on, out of respect, we don't talk about it. So when the government asked us if people died out there, we wouldn't talk about it, but it made it easy for the government to pretend. 
Ngabarji ngabarji means I give you something and you give me something. Ngabarji ngabarji is about teaching people in the cities, around the country and overseas that we need to keep our languages strong. We need to work together to start talking about this at a government level. The Ngabarji Ngabarji show is a story about the Cold War and the Maralinga bombs, how it affected me, my family and my people, the Spinifex nation. Scott Rankin and I have been working together on this play for the last seven years. Napaji Napaji is one of a number of projects that Big Art are running around Australia. Big Art brings together artists and communities to work together to find ways of telling their stories through the arts. In February of 2006, I traveled to Australia to spend time with filmmaker Alex Kelly and actor Trevor Jameson, who you just heard, and director Scott Rankin to document what I understood to be their production of a play about the impact of British nuclear testing on Australia's Aboriginal communities for my book, Art and Upheaval. Long story short, it didn't take me long to realize that that understanding was akin to our human ancestors' belief that the world was flat as a pancake. In my defense, this was an entirely reasonable conclusion given that the show, called Napogee Napogee, was being produced by a performing arts organization called Big Art that, among other things, produced plays. I suppose you could say that assumption was the flat earth part of this story. As you probably guessed, it's the among other things aspect that I came to learn provided the third dimension for Planet Big Art. Don't get me wrong, a major performance did play an important role in the Napogee Napogee saga, but the show's multi-year national tour was only one of the many chapters in what turned out to be an incredibly expansive and impactful endeavor that among other things produced a national indigenous language maintenance and revitalization campaign a national online Pijinjara language school, a grassroots cross-generational community development program, a touring company of indigenous and non-indigenous performers, many of whom lived the story being shared on stage, a three-year indigenous language research collaboration with the Center for Aboriginal Economic Policy, a digital media training program for indigenous youth with a catalog of dozens of films, a music and theater training program for indigenous young people, six national theater awards, a multi-award winning documentary called Nothing Rhymes with Napogee, and a significant increase in public awareness and understanding of the devastating multi-generational impact of 12 years of British nuclear testing on Australia's Aboriginal communities. Like I said, what I discovered on my journey and subsequent research was far more than a do-gooder play in a faraway land. It was a big, expansive, constantly morphing, multi-dimensional, seven-year-long enterprise that was quintessentially big art. An enterprise I also came to know was just one continent on a much larger big art planet. A planet that we'll be exploring in depth through conversations with big art director Scott Rankin in our next two episodes. On with the show. Part one. Acknowledgement and observation. So I'll begin with a question that we often ask. Where are you hailing from? Yes. So as I look out the window, this is the coastline of what is commonly now called Tasmania. There's kind of bottom island 
of the mainland of what's called Australia. But the country itself is Tommy Jinnah country. And it's a place that's had in waves and waves of sadness and waves of tenacity culturally. So it, it is, it's acknowledged and called Tomajina locally, but it's the great sadness to say that there, there aren't any Tomajina people here now. So it's looked after by the Palawa people of Tasmania. The second question is about acknowledgement, which you've written about the difference between acknowledgement and observation in the context of your own geography and history. Yeah. In in some ways, the acknowledgement of the country that you're on has become a kind of convenience. It's like a risk mitigation strategy of not putting a foot wrong and being cancelled. Instead of it being an insight and a reminder before public gatherings of the greatest cultural and environmental achievement in the history of humanity, and that is the continuous cultural activation of country and cultural knowledge and cultural sharing for somewhere between 65 and 100,000 years. So I sometimes in acknowledgements will say, look, we think of the 10 generations of being colonised since the frontier wars of this country that's called Australia. We think of 50 generations to a quite a good playwright called Shakespeare and when he was working and we think of him as quite a long time ago and then 100 generations, if you like, back to a to Gaza Strip and Galilee and a fisherman who could turn water into wine and we think of that as a long time ago or the ancient pyramids 184 generations ago and these are very short time frames compared to 2,000 generations of continuities. Really in acknowledging the privilege of, of being brought into and held by this kind of deep cultural and ecological knowledge systems and and it's a a rare and wonderful place to live in the world. Sometimes that can reshape the beginning of meetings or the beginning of discussions away from the risk mitigation Mm -hmm. to go, oh my God, I'm so lucky to be included in this generous way. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I'm going to ask a short but often very complicated question, which is what is your work in the world? How do you share it, particularly with people who don't have the backstory and don't have the assumptions that many of our colleagues carry? That's a great question, and it's something that I would answer in different ways on different given days. And I sometimes see it like this, that as many people have commented, if you're well-fed and the proteins are good and the air is good, et cetera, as a human being, you're going to live for about 750,000 hours and that's where you make your contribution. And a third of it, you'll be asleep. There's quite a bit where you're very vulnerable as a baby primate. And there's quite a, a bit at the end of your life where you're vulnerable again. And in the middle there is this very short few hundred thousand hours where you are contributing to the world. And so I think of my contribution as one of bringing stories that are seemingly invisible into visibility for people in such a way that it's harder to abandon them. Or another way, phrase that that we use is, it's like a vision statement in a funny way. It's, It's harder to hurt someone if you know their story. And visibility requires virtuosity. And sometimes we frown on that word at our end of the the making. But for the voice of sorrow or or the voice of abandonment to be present, it requires every ounce of our 
virtuosity in content and our virtuosity in, in the process of making the work. So keeping an eye on invisible stories and making them visible, my focus is on the 80% of that task, which is process, not so much on the 20% kind of commodity Western view of, of the power of content. Content is good, but the process and who's welcomed into the process, who's, who's allowed to be one of the makers, and, and how, you, how you break down those permissions is the real work. And then finally, I sometimes combine it with the neat fra- phrase of Professor Sayed, who, who talks about nations are narrations. And for better or worse, we live in these temporary nations and they unfold in chapters. And some power elites tend to gravitate towards controlling that narration. But there are many entry points into becoming one of those narrators. And that happens through virtuosic process and really virtuosic content as well. You mentioned Edward Said, who I think went on to say that the power to control or disappear those narratives you're talking about is a central feature of the imperial mindset, particularly in its relationship to the colonization of culture. And I have to say that What you've just described as your practice, revealing and celebrating those stories that have been controlled and rendered invisible, that 80% process work, for me, translates as sacred. Hmm. tell, Tell me more. A sacred practice. Sacred to me is an abiding and deep consciousness of what we think we know and the gap between that and the, the mysteries of the world. As you quote Carl Jung, the luminous pause between those two mysteries, life and death, which in the end are one. When you get into it as deeply as you have, what I hear you saying is we're not here just to do a show. We're here in a way in which we recognize and respect that we're more aware of what we don't know than what we do know. And our practice pays great attention to that. And as far as I'm concerned, the sacred is all about that. It is about that luminous pause and the mysteries that those two bookends hold. And it's, to me, it's thrilling. I think to a lot of people, it's it's really scary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And virtuosity, basically, I think in the Western sense, is often just being so good technically that people are awed. And I think the virtuosity you're describing as being extraordinarily accountable in your process to the awesome power of those stifled narratives, to those stories in the communities where you work. Yeah, and that's inspiring to me. Yeah, and that words like sacred and mystery, there's, there is an aversion to them because we've been for a couple of thousand years so mesmerized by particular mi- mindsets and that that force us away from them and, and, and have achieved enormous things in one direction, one very narrow direction, which is, is now unraveling. I think between now and 2050, we're going to see a great unraveling of that way of thinking. The Jungian disposition to those great traditions of unknowing and stillness can combine with David Mamet's idea of inspiring, cleansing awe through the work we make, or I forget who said it, but truth without nuance is tyranny. And so nuance and mystery and the sacred um, are way, ways of describing, I think, a form of 
the old-fashioned word of forgiveness, that how do you sit in the moment of great pain and loss, the kind of unifying thing of loss, that is life, and forgive in such a way that nuance comes to the truth and the truth speaks to the, the current power dynamics and reshapes them. Or another friend of mine, he's on our board and he's worked the same three decades with people who live with a disability and he lives with one himself. And he talks about people gentling the world, that many of his clients who he's building lifestyles with may have no connection with other people in the way that we think about it. And in, But in the world, their purpose and the way in which they move through spaces is a gentling factor or a gen gentle force this is the wrong word but that's mysterious and that's sacred as well or in a very formal judeo-christian tradition of true religion is looking after widows and orphans and you can go well, what does that mean but if you think back into through time to the most vulnerable most precarious lives were lived by the unparented and the and the widowed and so true religion is not abandoning. So that informs the work, aside from any of the Christian tradition that some people may not like. That informs this kind of work, along with the Jungian mystery. Part two, a world of changes. So now a bit more of a historical question. I know that your worldview and way of working springs from a pretty interesting life path. Where was the starting line? Where did all this begin? Well, I was born in Sydney and grew up in a strange childhood on a Chinese junk in Sydney Harbour, then uh, a, like a Chinese boat, and living a fairly transient life, half in the boat and half in a boat shed. We were a shy family because we were living illegally, so we weren't drawing attention to ourselves, and so we didn't have things like birthday parties. But we were a very warm family. We didn't have television. Both my parents were interrupted by the Second World War, ended up in Australia. My father from Ireland and my mother from England, and they got married here. No one came to their wedding, basically. It was just that story of the new land. And, and her passion was early childhood play, very specifically, not educational play, but the sanctity of play itself as the work of childhood, as the thing, and not loading it up with educative values, allowing them to come through. And my father was, he was a, into a lot of things, but basically timber and interiors and boats and a wonderfully unsuccessful businessman, craftsperson, just brilliant at losing money at every turn. But And together they lived this bohemian life on this Chinese junk and in this boat shed. The boat shed was borrowed and the, the boat you weren't allowed to live on permanently. And you could live on the boat for your holidays and you could live in the boat shed like a shack for your holidays. When the water police would come around and ask, are you living on that boat? They'd say, no, we live in the boat shed. And when the council came, they'd say, no, we don't live in the boat shed, we live on a boat. And they did that for 21 years. It was shy, quiet, bohemian and full of sunshine and water and in boats all the time. And for some reason within it was a passion for justice, which I think was seeded by us, my mother's interest in early childhood, her interest in play for children living with autism. It wasn't very well known in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And we would make toys for her, to her design, like a little family of toy makers for, I'd get paid a dollar or something. And, and those would be specially made for a particular child that she was seeing to encourage 
different kinds of play, but something was seeded in that passion for a better world at a, at a young age. And then looking back in my father's Irish heritage, there was a mad motorbike riding gospel preacher who worked in the slums of Belfast and Glasgow and places. And I used to pore over these photos of, of him as this charismatic, handsome speaker. And then his father made the stained glass windows on City Hall in Belfast. And another auntie was a weaver. So I was pushed into justice and art by these forces that are, that are in your DNA somehow or in the homeopathy of who you are as a person. <laughs> and so that came out in school. The only thing I was good at was painting. And the only badge I got in Boy Scouts was the artist's badge. <laughs> I, then I went to Sydney College of the Arts for a, a year and hated it with a passion that it was attached to designing better toothbrushes or saucepan lids or whatever, and nothing to do with traction in the real world, as I naively was thinking at the time. And then after that, I came to Tasmania. And the, the town of Burnie, which is, I suppose you could say it was commemorated in a song by a, a band that very few people in this country know, Midnight Oil, which you quote, and uh, the chorus of the song ends with, I'll have my way brought up in a world of changes. So how, yeah, how did you come to this it's hard to, to know reflection neatens everything up. <laughs> yes, it does. But my, in, in growing, so then the opportunity came up to go to do this work in Burnie, which was a mill town, which was going through enormous changes. It was a world of changes as the mills closed down, took over the Australian mill and shut it down in that way that they those big companies were doing in the 80s. And I was asked to go and run an employment program which I didn't know very much about, and a drop-in centre, and there was no real money involved. So, I, But I rocked up to do that and fell in love with this industrial town, which was much hated in Tasmania as the arse end of the state, and, but loved this underbelly of creativity that was there. And then just started, I said, I've got to make some money. So I just started playing music in restaurants, and there was only one restaurant at the time. And, then, and so the two things started to come together. And then for International Youth Year, I wrote a play about all the issues that we were looking at, and that did well and toured nationally. And that just kick-started a, a thing that I haven't got out of. And in, initially, it went from that work into uh, writing comedies. I was quite good at structure and dramaturgy and working with individuals who were funny and writing material that would become a vehicle for them. So those shows became popular and they generated royalty and things and and then that allowed me to begin big heart or big art with a, a producer friend from bernie and, and we got it all going and so here's the thing every time i ask this kind of question it's yeah we got on a train and stopped a few places and then we ended up at the at the destination which was big art but along the way serendipity or not you bumped into a bunch of things for which you were not trained, which you really took to with a vengeance, not just seems interesting. And and were there any people, any influences that just lit your fire in a way that told you that you should keep doing this? Yeah, it, it's different forms of that. One, one person that I obviously never met that was very inspired by was the Russian dancer, Nijinsky, and 
and it, I was struck by the, the inevitable narrative, if you like, of his loss of his sanity was one side that people often focus on, but the other side of, of being art itself in such a way that you transform a whole way of thinking and a whole culture and, and wasn't about outward stardom. It was about inward intensity and so much so that in the end, I think his mind and body couldn't cope with with his access to gift. And then looking at that story and going, oh, okay, there's that mm. Diaghilev producer or impresario in the background and everybody thinks of him as the bad guy who exploited. But then in the nuance of that story, there's an incredible scaffold of a talent and exploitation mm -hmm. hand in hand. And there's the yin and the yang and the good and the bad, however you want to say it, together. And they were a very muscly duo who pulled in these other incredible artists at the start of this, we think of the 21st century as modern, but at, the, at their era as they were coming through, just revolutionizing a new century, basically. And so I found that really inspiring. And there was a producer down here who was a friend I met when I came to Bernie, son of a potato farmer, John Bakes. He's still a great friend. And he had a certain patience to when something is nothing, to be able to conceive of it and to, and to then fan it into flames, which everybody wants to be a producer these days, and, and almost no one is. They're, almost everyone who calls themselves a producer are a form of arts administration, whereas to be producing is to be a farmer with soil, and your first job is not to graze the crop. Your first job is to tend to the soil and leave it alone to do its brilliant thing yeah and that's much closer to what producing is in yeah. in arts and society i think so he was like that and he gave me room to fail and to to make enormous risky decisions and and then he said I, I've, I've done this enough now and he's he doesn't do it anymore and it set me free to, to explore the artistry and i think there were then key there's lots of things you could talk about but seeing Kronos Quartet play first time I, I saw them, I can't, late 80s maybe. Kronos was one of the first groups that I produced in the California prison system. Which brings up a question related to your own path. I mean, you know, you could have jumped into theater as a producer, as a director of the Western canon, but at a critical point, you turned your focus to young people in Bernie. So there's Kronos, who were steeped in the Western tradition, but really went in a different direction musically and stylistically in a way that at the time was revolutionary and I think consciously disruptive. And I was wondering if you thought of yourself as disrupting anything or was it just coming at you naturally? Yeah, I think it was more the latter. It was making an observation, really. And interestingly, in our first project, I just ripped off the Kronos. I can't even remember which tune now. I'd have to look back. The Kronos piece and put it in the show with these 16, 17-year-old young offenders, as they were known. These protesting young people is another way of thinking about it. And the first sort of gesture with them was they got involved in various ways, but we just went into it and I said, look, this space has been in your town for a long time. It's a theatre. And that day I'd been around and to all the second-hand shops and got a stack of china plates crockery and i just was talking to them about what this space is and they don't they didn't care and i just said 
gave a plate said to, to one of the kids and said, can you just throw that against the, br the brick wall at the back? And they tentatively threw it and trying not to break it. And then I said, oh, no, so could you throw this one to another one? And then they, they really took to it and they threw these plates in this wonderful shattering Colossian world of abandoned vandalism held tight on stage. And I said, you, that's what showbiz is, that is it. And we made that show and that Kronos music, which was super inspiring, sat in amongst some Metallica, which those young people really liked. And, and it was this sort of cross-fertilisation. And then, yes, that show went on to the National Festival of Theatre in Australia. More importantly, that group was offending once a week, according to the police, um, coming to the attention of police, not necessarily charged at the start of the project. And at the end of the project, there was one offence in 10 months from that group of young people. And, you know, I'm still in touch with them. One of them that he is on runs a papermaking social enterprise with me, this kid who smashed the first plate. And in the dramaturgy, the community dramaturgy, they found this perfect trajectory for themselves individually and as a group and on stage. And it was in in that moment after the first two pieces that we started to go, should we try and define what happened, what's just happening? There is the individuals and their journey, there's community responding to those young people, and then there's the work that's being made. And we have had three dramaturgical journeys platted together. Um, and that was the start of, hang on, this is more, more complex and therefore more valuable and therefore appeals to many more policy areas than Arts Tasmania or the Australian Council for the Arts or something. Part 3, The Namajira Project. You did a body of research on your own work, the work of you and your hundreds of colleagues, in the form of a thesis, 30 years of practice, big art, cultural justice, and the mm. right to thrive. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is to think about one of the many things that you have done that personifies that idea, cultural justice and the right to thrive. Two projects, one of which is eight years and one of which is currently 13 years spring to mind because there, are, there is a neatness to their resolution and almost a core simplicity that, are, that helps it to be seen quickly. One of the eight-year project was with the family of Albert Namajira, who was an Aboriginal artist who was born in 1902, which is almost at the same time as Federation of Contemporary Australia. So his life through to 1959 marked this emergence of this contemporary version of this ancient country. He was a camel boy, using that word carefully, who could take people on journeys with camels. And he learnt to paint with uh, an artist, a Western artist who'd come back from the Western Front. He should have died in, in the trenches. And, and he was a watercolourist, Rex Batterby. And he went out to Central Australia to paint. And really, he was painting his soul back to life, I think. And he met Albert Namajira. And then they very quickly started painting together. And Albert had this natural facility. and. So he painted these incredible pictures that were portholes into the middle of the country, which Anglo-Australians hugging the coast, hoping the ships would come and take them back to Europe, never saw. Most people had no idea what it was like. 
So these pictures got showed around the capital cities and a frenzy took off with people buying his art. And he was a fully initiated, important man in one culture. And he became this, which is the Western Aranda culture and he, near Alice Springs. And he became this crossover figure who could reinterpret sacred places, remove totemic symbols and leave it an, an image of it safe for non-Aboriginal people to see in his own country. And in doing so, he also entrepreneured this amazing career and he was supporting six, a family of 600 people from his art making. <laughs> and he was made a citizen in early 50s. Aboriginal people were still considered flora and fauna. I know that's an offensive idea, but it's many other Aboriginal people have talked about that. And he was made a citizen because you can't tax a non-citizen. So because he was making so much money, they wanted to tax him. But he couldn't buy land in the Western sense, he, or he couldn't buy his own country. Anyway, over the last few decades, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Albert Namajira didn't own the copyright in his work. So they couldn't benefit from his images of his pictures in the media or in galleries or anywhere or in catalogues. And clearly that was wrong. And here we are painting our Qantas jets in imagery of Aboriginal art from the Aboriginal art movement, which incidentally, there's 107 art centres and we chronically own them. And they are health centres, mental health centres, transport centres, care centres and art centres, these places. Incredible network. We as a country hardly fund them and yet we exploit the imagery that comes from them to promote the billion-dollar tourism industry. And Albert Namajira and Rex Batterby started that mm. art centre movement. So all these things were coming together, and Trevor Jamison, the great Australian Pigeon Jarrah actor, and I had been collaborating for 10 years before this. Mm. And we were coming up to the um, 50th anniversary of Albert Namajira's passing in 2009, and it seemed so abhorrent that nothing was being said about this weeping intellectual property sore at the, at the heart of our country. So we thought, well, what could we do? And the first thing was for Trevor to go and from Pitjantjara to Western Aaron to go and talk about, could there be something to collaborate on here as a story? And so we began a, a year or two of that conversation. If you don't mind, I just want to point out something here that I think will be striking to those who are listening who are involved in community arts practice. Back then, you were at the front end of a campaign spurred on by a historic pattern of injustice, and you began by engaging community partners who you knew were going to need to trust you. And you took the time, the many, many months that it took to do that, and it's no small thing to have the patience and be in a position to do that. And then... You do the same thing with a prominent established institutional partner as well. Yes, we talked to Belvoir Street Theatre, probably the country's best contemporary theatre, and we said, look, mm -hmm. just give us, just say yes to it from your point of view, and we'll see if what happens with the process of making. We can't tell you exactly what it is yet, but we do know that we'll be drawing uh, these enormous works of art on your theatre walls whilst this story is told. And then, so then we started thinking we'd better make a documentary and we started thinking we'd better tour exhibitions of 
the contemporary schools of Namajira paintings. And then uh, we better be running workshops in Namajira educationally in the community. And all these things were coming out of the conversations with Ndaria or Hermansburg, as it's called. Hermansburg is named after a little town in Germany from the Lutheran tradition. And Lutherans who sang when Albert was just a two-year-old, they came out to Central Australia to run this mission and brought their melodic structures with them. The women of Ndaria learnt those melodic structures and combined them with the great, much, much older traditions of Western Aranda music and vocal structures and where you sing in the throat and how you produce a sound and sitting in that community with this incredible sacred combination of music, which of course many people would have said, oh, well, that's just, that's that terrible imposition of the, of the Lutheran missions. But it was an entrepreneurial remaking of, of sonic structures and, and they're incredible singers. So then the show started to form with this music and, and then a virtuosic recorder player, Genevieve Lacey, got involved and the recorder is the opposite to what you would think, but it sat in the body of this intercultural spiritual exchange that had happened in that community. Out here, it's clear that my old world instruments are young. And I become part of something much older and bigger than I am. In this company, music is story, song is land, and listening is healing. And then Kevin Namajira, one of the grandchildren, said to us, look, I want to meet the Queen. And we, the, the colonists in us all recoiled, what are you saying? How could we possibly? And he said, because the police in the Northern Territory have the crown on their badge and I need a letter from the Queen to stop them throwing me out of my house. And, and suddenly all of that collection of massive ideas came down to this one Thing that was happening right on the ground, right in front of our eyes. So we said, Kevin, we'll give it a go. The show toured the country, 50,000 people saw it. The exhibitions traveled. That drove the media. Murdoch's media got involved to some degree and we started to tell this story of this, that this is wrong about the copyright. And then we ended up in South Bank in London playing the show and we got a call from Buckingham Palace saying, Her Majesty wants to meet you on the day of opening night. We've flown across the world. Whoa. And that doesn't happen, apparently. We didn't necessarily know that. So we had nothing to wear, the protocols. An ambassador went in, was two minutes with the Queen before us. We walked in, in our costumes, because we didn't have any other clothes, coming straight from rehearsal, and had 20, 25 minutes with the Queen, Kevin speaking to her about his needs. We bring the story projected to London so Queen can see what's happened. We, it wasn't a politicised meeting. They exchanged paintings 
and Prince Philip had these funny anecdotes, which I won't say in this, the classic Prince Philip stuff. The point being, we standing outside the gates at Buckingham Palace, Kevin and I were able to, to say, from Buckingham Palace to Homeless in Alice. And that got picked up as a phrase on the back of the six years of touring and an entrepreneur in Australia picked up the phone and said, I will pay whatever it takes. Um, a guy called Dick Smith, I'll, I will pay to buy that copyright back for the family. And, and we'd been negotiating with the gallery owner who owned it legally. And suddenly it all came back to them. The family owned it and a, a trust was set up by, by pro bono by a law firm. And that now generates income for the family for education and health benefits in the community. And that healing saw that was eating away at the soul of the country has has occurred because of the tenacity of the Namadira family. And we would describe it as there were individuals going through that dramaturgical journey. There was the community itself and our work and our collaboration with them that was dramaturgical. There was the forms of art making that was that had their own dramaturgies, including the documentary that would play on the back of Qantas seats around the world. There were awards won for the family. Then the, there was this other, what we call domains of change. Yeah, so in your paper, your opus, Big Arts, 30 Years of Practice, Cultural Justice and the Right to Thrive, you have a kind of roadmap that shows how you see the ripples of your work impacting various levels and layers of social and political and cultural domains. How the people and communities and broader society are impacted by your work. Could you talk about that in the context of this story? Yeah, so they were the first three, individual community and then art. And the fourth one is policy or influence, consequence, if you like. And then the last one is what we're doing now, sharing or transfer of knowledge and not owning the knowledge, but sending it out. And that's from everyone, from the Namajira family, etc. And all those things happened around that one issue. And I think the public would see the documentary, the exhibitions and the theatre show as being the work. But that's the 20% over that eight-year project. And the rest is the work as well. It's not a value judgment. But all we've done is, if it's not a commodity and you can't buy a small piece of cardboard for your entry into the theatre, it's not a thing, but it is the thing. And in our own lives, it's really what we call processes. We all have them. We're all deeply involved in them. And what we do is exclude others from them. Yes. And those exclusions are another way of describing how people in communities who are not endowed with influence who are not tapped into the power structure, become invisible. But you're proclaiming with your work with them, with these people, these communities, and this history have not disappeared. And this is not just a theory or a position. It's a practice, a creative practice that brings human creativity and story-making to bear as a change-making force to be reckoned with. And another thing we're going to need to reckon with right here is that I think we've come to a moment where we're going to end this first episode. So in our next episode, we'll continue our discussion with Scott and hear some more big art stories. Interestingly, one that is about skateboarding as a transformational lever for social and cultural change. So thanks again for lending us your ear and 
Also, if you're so inspired, passing this story and its companions on Change the Story, Change the World on to your friends. And something we'd like to pass on in our show notes are links to all the incredible films and music and writing that tell much more about the big art story. Also, if you have some comments or questions or ideas about how we can expand the Change the Story community or people you think we should be talking to, please drop us a line at csac at artandcommunity.com. That's csac at artandcommunity.com. And please know that we read and try our best to respond to everything. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape spring forth from the head, heart, and hands of the maestro Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org. Our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of OOP 235. So, until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. And rest assured, this episode has been 100% human.